This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Hey everyone, Sakuyi here. And before things begin, I would just like to remind you all that with this month, which is now January, and I'm not even sure if I remember to add all of this in at the beginning of each episode as it comes out. Lord knows I probably haven't at this point, but I'm making this blurb now to remind you all to please make sure to get this month's Chirp audiobook. Uh, the book that we're talking about in this case is Iran, which, no, that, 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 that's the name, is Iran, because it goes into the history of Iran. I'm not sure if you could get it based off the name of what it is that I'm describing, but I think it's one of those things that we really don't in the Western world study enough of in the history of certain places like Iran in order to understand why it is the way that it is today. And this is a book that goes in in depth into the constitutional revolutions and everything that led Iran to become the modern state that it does. And this are, it's just filled with fascinating details that I think that all of you will appreciate because it really opened up my eyes to a lot of the knowledge that a lot of us probably have not heard of before. So please get that book. It's on sale for $3.99. It's going to be in the link in the comments below. Also, make sure to support us on Patreon. If you can pay a dollar a month, this is going to get you access not only to some bonus episodes that we release each month, but simultaneously ad-free versions of this podcast. Uh, also, make sure to get our coffee. Well, I mean, I don't seem like make sure to get the coffee, but it is good coffee, so you, I know you're going to enjoy it if you try it. Either way, thank you all very much for listening. I hope you enjoyed today's episode, and good luck to all of you. Hello everyone, Stucky here. And I'm Gabby. And welcome back to the podcast, my host. Welcome back everyone to an episode. Actually, I don't really know necessarily the order in which a lot of these things are getting posted because we're doing these back to back to back to back, trying to crank out as many of them as possible because we're going to France in like a week. Though by the time by that this time goes you out. Hear this, we will already have been on our way back from France. Yeah, you are entirely right. More than likely, this is going to go out really as we're coming back. Either way, there's going to be a lot of content, probably a lot of videos, probably a lot of everything to see, because I'm really hoping that with the way that everything has been developing here on the podcast, that eventually that not only will we be able to make videos and things that are on site at locations for specific historical sites, but that simultaneously, maybe at some point we could even do what like um, you talked about them before. Those channels that when it's doing like the mystery ones and they're going out specifically to the sites, like whether it's hauntings or whether it's talking about no, places like National Park After Dark, where they would like do those. like different um, trips, I guess, like they'll go on group trips, like guided trips yeah. to different places. So I think they're going to like Alaska and a bunch of different places. But I feel like that's really different because National Park After Dark, those girls are like outdoor enthusiasts and then other outdoor enthusiasts pay to go hiking with them. It's true. Which is, I mean, what, what would his history people do? They'd be like, War oh, sites. let's meet up and look at War sculpture. Sites. 
There's two ways we could go That'd about be that. So strange. Though. I don't want people paying to hang out with me. That'd be weird. Oh, okay. I agree with that first part. Cause it sounds, it, it, it does sound kind of odd and it's very, like maybe we all just about. meet up when we go hang. I would love to do one of those things where it's like, if it's in America, an American civil war tour or like in world war one tour or a world war two tour, or just castles, literally do an entire thing based around going to historical castles. That would be fun. I think a castle one would be awesome if it was someplace in like Europe or some other thing. Uh, Austria, Germany. Oh, yeah. Oh, oh, an entire thing. Someplace based around in the Europe. Alps. You mean the place with all the castles? Well, yeah, please. The stereotypical ones that we think of. Other than that, you'd be going to a bunch of the different places that are in uh, different parts of Asia. I don't know how many of those are still standing that are actual fortifications or anything like that. Either way, we're getting a little bit off topic. Because really off topic. Yeah, the, speaking of Asia, this entire thing that we are going to be talking about today is about the Silk Road. Not the Silk Road. It's mainly about silk because you were supposed to add in the Silk Road part of the podcast. I did. I did. Because this was like a bit of a combined one that we I were was doing. supposed to write about the Silk Road. He was like, write me a podcast <laughs> episode about the Silk Road. I just like threw His my mouse, mouse just went the <laughs> Oh, that's so sad. Anyway, he was like, write me a podcast episode about the Silk Road. And I was like, oh, yeah, easy money. I can do that. Um, three hours in, I had like multiple pages on silk. Yeah. Nothing about the actual Silk Road. And I was like, hey, I don't I can't find anything about the Silk Road, but I can tell you exactly way too much about silk. Which is like if you and remember silkworms. when I and talked about potatoes. It happens. It's like I I didn't mean to I found this like um first these primary sources, like this one sort well, I found this one book from like the mm-hmm. 19, 1959 that basically told us all about sericulture and silk and the discovery of silkworms. And just the development of silk in China, like from the very beginning and how they passed all the laws across the different dynasties and how regulated and how deregulated it was at different points. And I just went down a rabbit hole. Like the book, I think what was available on JSTOR was like 159 pages. And I was like 65 pages in before I was like, this is nothing about this silk road. This is just about silk production. Which, okay, can I just say this? Welcome to the life of what happens with anyone doing anything for history. When I'm doing studies on something, remember what happened with potatoes? And they just have like, oh yeah, I'm supposed to be talking about how potatoes were introduced to Europe. And meanwhile, we're talking about the entire thing based around scrofula and the diseases associated oh, with I it. Did, okay, so also, oh, while boy. learning about silk, I had to take like a little leap into HPLC, you know, a little bit of mass spectrometry over there. On how they were able to actually find proof that silk existed at a specific time point in a specific place in like, I don't even remember the time period, but it was like 8,000 years ago. So I had to stop there, of course, and figure out exactly how they found the protein peptides in the soil sample. So I went down that rabbit hole as well. But, you know, the fruits of my labor is whatever you guys are about to hear. So, (laughs) (laughs) Yay! Congrats! Well, then I think that you should probably start off with talking about this since it's the thing that you really wanted to get into. This is the thing that you were fascinated with because we're going into actual silk production from the beginning. I think you start reading it and then I can just jump in with like my little tidbits that I remember. Okay, that's fine. Because you have a narrator voice. Oh, thank you. I appreciate that. Before we get into it, though, why not have our first ad break? Hey everyone, Sakuya here, and before we get back to the show, I would just like to thank today's sponsor, eBay Motors. eBay Motors is here for the ride. 
Remember when you first saw the potential, and then through some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. With over 122 million parts for your number one ride or die, you can make sure that your ride stays running smoothly. Brake kits, LED headlights, exhaust kits, turbochargers, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. And we're back. Okay, so, Silk, going from the beginning, this is going to be a little bit of an extensive thing to talk about. Probably going to be a little bit all over the place, but let's talk about it. I, I, love, I love very specific histories like this. This just, it's... Like potatoes it's and tomatoes even, and all the foods, this, this is cool super, to me. It's not even super specific. And here's why it's, it's as specific as I could get with the resources that I had. But you can't even get more specific because they don't even know exactly the True. origin. It's all tales and stories and maybes. True. Yeah, that, that's usually what happens when you start going back ancient-wise. Like, th th there's, there's nothing specific. And you end up getting into times of legend. Which that's kind of precisely what ends up happening with silk. Because again, we're talking silk. This is a fabric that was being first produced in China. And the origin of how silk was invented. I mean, it's ancient. It is something that is very ancient. And there are many different legends that try to explain the exact roots of it. But the whole thing is a little bit murky. What we do know is that silk was invented in China. Where it's recorded as existing sometime before the third millennium BC. Now, one of the most famous legends about this is that it was the wife of the legendary Yellow Emperor who was given the title Goddess of Silk. And this was uh, to Lady Si Ling Shi. Si Ling Shi, I believe. And so that person. You could just call her Lezu. Lezu? Yeah, also known as Lezu. Yeah, so also known as Lezu. So she's given the title Goddess of Silk and is then responsible for the discovery and the use of silk. The legend, as it goes, is that Lei Zhu was having tea in the Imperial Gardens when a cocoon fell into her tea and unraveled. Lei Zhu then noticed that this cocoon was made of a thread that was very soft. It was strong and, again, very soft. So she had the idea to take this silk from the cocoon and combine them into a thread. And thus it was from this that the silk loom was invented. And then the threads were combined into a soft cloth. The legend says that Li Tzu then planted a forest of mulberry trees for the silkworms to feed on and that she taught the rest of China how to make silk. I mean, the exact credit for the use and discovery of the silkworm and how this whole thing happens. I mean, it, it's going to be really hard to track down. There's a lot of different contradictory sources. And again, the majority of it goes back into legend. So reasonably speaking, there is no way for us, us to actually tell who is the first person to do this or anything. But the best part of all of my research was the origin of the silkworm, like the discovery of the silkworm. And this is where I found that book on JSTOR, where they told you like the old Chinese legend on how the first silkworm was discovered. So, Steve, just just. Just read it. So I would like to see your face. She put the legend on here. So now this is this is me seeing this, this is here. The, this is the legend that was in the book. So. All right. Quote, 
Now, I found an old Chinese legend on how the first silkworm was discovered. And buckle up because it's a fun story. Okay, I like your writing there, Gabby. I like your writing there. So as the legend goes, an old man and his daughter lived in a little hamlet. The old man got called away to go on a military expedition and left his daughter at home. And her only companion was the father's old horse. That daughter was so lonely. Oh, God, please don't. I, I, I no, hope no, no, this no, is no, not. It's, I don't. Well, just keep reading. The just daughter reading. was so lonely and her father was gone for such a long time that one day she looked at the horse and said, if you can bring back my father, I will marry you. You so promise me this is not going in the direction well, that I think that it is? Just keep reading. The girl didn't think that the horse could actually hear her or that it would bring back her father, so she didn't mean what she said. But the horse took off and found her father at his camp and successfully brought him back home. Now, once at home, the father noticed that the horse got very angry every time his daughter was present. And one day, the girl told the father what it is that she promised. He told her to never speak of it again because it would bring shame upon the family. Yeah, I, I, I would think so. And then he proceeded to make a plan to kill his horse in an ambush. The horse wanted payment. Okay, Wait, what was he supposed to do? Hold what on, would, I'm just thinking from this from the beginning. What would be done here? How are you going to ambush a horse? I don't know. The horse is like eating like, his little grass. And then all of a sudden you hop out and you're like, wouldn't it just be a situation? The horse is in a stable and you pull him out. It's like, okay, boy, we're going to go for a little bit of a walk here. And then as you like take the horse out of his stall, just take out a knife and just like down the throat. I feel like the horse ambush is not the point of the story. Let's keep going. I'm very confused about that. I have to ask. So once the horse was slain, the young girl was playing with her friends near the hide and she walked over to the hide and kicked it and said, you deserve this punishment. Being an animal, how dare you expect to marry me? And as soon as she said it, the hide sprung up, wrapped the girl up, and flew away. A hunting party was sent out to find the girl, and they discovered the missing hide in a tree, and they brought it home and kept it in the hope that she would reappear. But when the girl appeared, it turns out she had transformed into a moth. And this is the legend of how the silkworm discovered... Wait, hold on, hold on, hold on. Hold on. I don't hold know, on. Stephen. It was in the book. So she turns into a moth. So she was and the it just jumps. This is like saying, ah, yes. And then they found the great boss. Listen. And anyway, that's how farming was discovered. I like to look at it. And I think it's a good legend because I could see what it's trying to say. But also we need to remember that it is also kind of a parable. Well, yes. A lot of those early legends are. Never make a promise that you aren't willing to keep. And that's what I got from that story. I hope like we can all just an go animal. around and tell each other what we got from that story. And I think we would be better for it. I think if the Chinese were more like the Greeks, then in that situation, the horse would have been Zeus in, dis in disguise and she would have been married whether she liked it or not. I really thought when he like wrapped her up, because while I was reading, I was like, oh, no, he, he, he came back to life, bro. But then it was like, no, he just wrapped her up and was in a tree. I was really hoping it was going to be more action-packed, but then, I mean, it's, it's a cool Listen, original story. Listen, considering the subject of the matter that we're talking about, I really would like less action in that scenario. I That's think it's not a something... really good origin story for the silkworm. Um, I personally love a good silkworm, so I, I think it's spitting. <laughs> but the reality, regardless of what it is that you want to say, the reality of the situation is that silk and silk production, it goes back far 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 longer than any of us actually thought i mean there's proof that silk existed in neolithic china it's been found in the tombs of jiaqu 
which is one of the most early representations, I guess you could have of early Neolithic ruins in central China. And this is where I think that you you were talking about it here for the analyses okay. of the so, uh, the soil samples and how this all plays out. They were able out. to do analyses of soil samples in order to identify the presence of that silt. So it's really, really cool because this is where I was talking about the mass spectrometry, which mass spectrometry is just like an al- analytical tool used to measure the mass to charge ratio of one or more molecules present in a sample. But what they specifically did was like more of a, a liquid chromatography type thing, which you're probably going to need to explain that a little bit more because at this point. So chromatography <laughs> essentially is you'll have something that is stationary, a stationary phase, and you'll have like a mobile phase. And what they basically do is whatever is in the stationary phase makes it harder for whatever's in the mobile phase to move, like to diffuse through the stationary phase. And by the rate of diffusion or how far things get, you can kind of tell, you know, how they're reacting in that stationary phase, which gives an indicator of what that substance is. And that's like a really oversimplified way of explaining it, but it's the best way I can. Yeah, you say oversimplified, but it's still something that kind of goes a little bit beyond me there. Like, I get exactly what it is that you're saying. So, for mass spec, what we would do is we'd take a substance, we'd put it into our, we'll inject it into our little machine, Mm -hmm. and that by the way it is reacting, we'd be able to tell, hey, it's this thing, based on the peaks that it was giving off. Yeah. So that's how we're able to identify it. Everything is able to be identified by... I don't even know how to explain this Just the this reading to you. that it gives off. Basically, mass spec is used to identify unknown compounds via molecular weight determination to quantify known compounds and to determine structure and chemical properties of molecules. Don't hang up too much on what it is. Just ha- focus on what they used it for. Basically, they took the soil from these tombs and what they did is they looked at general area of where silk would be on a body so there were basically uh it was a wealthier tomb and there was skeletal remains so they looked where the pelvis would be and they'd say hey this is potentially where silk would be so they took soil samples all around where the corpse was so the corpse they were assuming was robed in silk yeah and so they took these soil samples and they tested it and what they were able to see were the uh protein peptides that would be present in silk in that soil sample. And they know that it wasn't like a false reading because they also had negative samples. So there were negative soil samples. So not every soil sample collected had protein peptide in it, like silk protein peptides in it. So they know that, hey, we actually were able to find silk protein peptides in this soil, which means that these people were clothed in silk or something really close to silk. Does that make it does. No, it sense. does make sense. And I love how you're saying that around the pelvis because all I can think is, man, they got the silk undies. Yeah. They so got like, like the nice I'm stuff. Not one of, wait. <laughs> you have to think, this is like what, 6,000 years ago, 7,000, 8,000? Also, um, I forgot the exact type of chromatography like they use, like the exact process that they use, but it was really, really cool. And you can actually look it up on like the NCBI website. I wish we had like, you know, the website running so I could link the source. Because there's actually like a whole journal article on here on this entire study and multiple studies like it because the biomolecular analysis of like ancient remains like ruins is huge. So 
Oh, that's incredibly cool. Look into it. I'm going to find a way to link this. Maybe I'll link it on my Instagram story. Yeah, but. Abs- absolutely do so. And, see, and I also have to say this for any of this, because just how much detail you would going into this, that is not something that I personally would put in terms of notes, because that's something that goes way beyond me. For anyone who so, we've like, ever I received. So I went down this rabbit hole, but I have no way how to, I have no idea how to simplify things. Because <laughs> that's like my hardest, uh, my biggest problem too. He knows, because I'm like writing this and I'm like, hey, how do I write this in like a, way that people want to listen to it. Tell a story versus a scientific paper. Right. I just got straight to the point. So I have two pages and I'm like, I think I'm done. He's like, what do you mean you're done? (laughs) (laughs) So like, I, and I also, I'm like really bad. And I, I use like way too much, but I'm really bad at explaining what's going on in my head because I would have a general like picture of what is happening. And I'd see the processes playing out in my mind, but how do I make you see those? I think just like, my knowledge to teaching. I think that was a pretty apt description. Converter. Though. I understood in the end what it is, is that you were talking broken. about and appreciate it. So, I mean, that was good. And this goes to anyone who has ever said any kind of criticism like, oh, she doesn't know what she's talking about with this insert random military fact here. Yeah, but I don't know shit about mass spectro- spectrometry. Also, there's multiple different types because at work when we do mass spec, it's for toxicology. So it's like very different from because they use nano. HPLC, like, which is very different from what we use. Theirs is way more advanced. So, like, there's also multiple different types. And I have no clue as to exactly the process of what they use. But it's like a general... General understanding of what it was. Exactly. Mass spec is just that way to identify compounds. Like, we could identify all sorts of chemical compounds using mass spectrometry just by determining the molecular weight or other characteristics of different... Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Molecules. Well, it's still really cool in the end, and I can only imagine how many applications that would have towards other archaeological sites in the future. Oh, they I use it for getting- a lot. If you go to the NCBI website, which is like what I use for, I use that website because I used a blast for primer probe design for salamanders. Mm-hmm. We use it at work for assays for infectious disease. But if you go on there, there's whole sections on history, and I've used it for mo- I used it for the Antonine Plague. When I did that. Or right to identify diseases in soil samples. I always end up on some scientific site when I write a podcast episode because I always come at it from. The scientist perspective. Which is so funny. And I just realized that I'm always on NCBI (laughs) researching with the podcast. Hey, that's cool. That's cool. Now, before we go into further, a little side note. Let's have a little (laughs) break before we go into this further. And we're back. Okay. So going into more of Silk and its history, right? There's a lot of other evidence that 
is there for Silk besides just this? Like we found stuff at sites of Yangshou, which is uh, the culture that you'd find in Xie County in Shanxi, which also includes a silk cocoon that was found cut in half by a sharp knife that dates back all the way to around 4000 or 3000 BC. The species that was identified from this was Bombyx mori, which that is the domesticated silkworm. You can find even fragments of primitive looms that could be seen in different sites of the Hindu culture in Yuyao in Shijiang. This dates all the way back to 4000 BC. There is any number of different early examples that we can talk about that goes back way, way, way further than anything we would normally anticipate. When I saw this, I was like, so that um, the one that was cut in half, that was a domesticated silkworm. My question was obviously, was it already domesticated or was it pre-domestication? I mean, they would have probably known the places where they could have potentially gotten stuff. I think you would associate it as some of the first species to be domesticated were like goats and things like that before pigs, before any of that, because you had boars and boars were very dangerous. That was actually a later one to try to domesticate because they weren't as easy to domesticate in the beginning. But goats and sheep, super easy to do early on. And as a result of that, you're going to have situations where before they domesticate them, they're hunting them. So you have like the wild sheep slash goats. So actually, what was the what was the name of the species? I can't remember what the name of it was. That was like the precursor to goats that they were uh, they were hunting. That's going to bother me. But regardless of the point, that is that uh, they would have been looking at this before they actually domesticated it. So they probably just knew where silkworms would be located and would go out and harvest them like berries. The earliest finding that we have of woven silk fabric is all the way from 3630 BC, where it was used to wrap the body of a child. This was found at a Yangshao site, and scraps of silk were also found at the Langzhu culture, which dates back to 2700 BC. There are different kinds of allusions to silk in the Old Testament that show that it was known in Western Asia in biblical times, or at least, I guess, substances like what we would think, like, okay, this was silk. And even one of the first pieces of evidence that we have for the trade in silk is that of an Egyptian mummy from 1070 BC. Which is so funny because there's like, when I was researching, there were other places where they thought silk was found, but then it turned out to be something similar to silk and not actually silk, like not the actual Chinese silk. It was silk. It could have been from a different kind of species that could have been related or right. an offshoot or a different thing. And then another cool thing is that. Persia would actually take Chinese silk and then redo it into Persian patterns. So they'd take their fabrics already made and then undo it and redo it. So you'd find Persian silks, but it was Chinese. It was, yeah. it gets complicated. You I guys. think that there's a distinct reason as to why they did that though. I'm pretty sure one of the reasons that the Persians did it is not only to just increase the value specifically because they're applying their own kinds of patterns and stuff to it, but also because it then confuses anyone that comes after it. It's like, oh, they're looking for the origin of silk. Well, obviously it comes from Persia because the Persians are the ones that are doing this. Well, they were the middlemen, weren't they? Like they oh, went yeah. China, Persia, Rome. Well, then to everyone else. That's just it. Central Asia was the gateway through which everything came. <gasps> and now we know Persia was Iran. Yes. <laughs> Yes, exactly. Because if you have already listened, if you to, listened the, to the Iran episode, Iran, you know. exactly to the Iran episode that if we did. If you haven't listened to it, go back, listen to it. <laughs> so we go back into the history of it here and we're talking about when it is the stuff is being produced. 
around 3000 BC or so, it's discovered that each silkworm cocoon would contain around a thousand yards of thread, which obviously that sounds like a lot. Yes, but it's like the singular strands of. So it's not like you're getting a huge amount necessarily of it. But this is something that could be unwound. It could be spun and then woven into fabric, which begins the rise of sericulture because sericulture is the act of raising, rearing these silkworms and the production of silk. Fabric is then created using looms and thread or treadle, like treadle treadle. operated versions. Yeah, it's like treadle operated versions of it that appear in examples that you'd see all over the place, like in murals of different tombs in the Han Dynasty. Basically, once they figured out how to get like the thread, they figured out how to, you know, loom it into fabric. Yeah, so it wasn't something that was just done by by hand. I actually have no idea how a loom works. Like, do you just put the thread and then? Well, How does it work? Okay, there's a lot of different ways because we're talking about decades, or not even decades, centuries upon centuries upon centuries of innovation. Why don't For I example, know how a loom works? One of the biggest inventions was such a simple little tool called the flying shuttle. The flying shuttle is something that enabled people over these massive loom systems to just crank out massive amounts of fabric. In fact, I should probably do an entire podcast that's dedicated to different stuff like that because it's really cool for seeing just the development of the cloth industry and how it all works because it's, it's a huge, huge thing, especially in certain parts of Europe and also India. India, before the British came in, was like one of the biggest cloth producers in the entire world, but everything was done more manually. So when the industrial cloth started coming in and it's so much cheaper than what something people can do by hand, well, it drives them all out of business and it ends up going from a big cloth producer to the resource producer needed to supply the cloth manufacturing. That is complex. Yes. But you still didn't tell me how a loom works. Right. Okay. How do I even begin to explain that? <laughs> like there's so many different types of looms. Like there's stuff to where you usually have a frame, right? Yes. So you have a, a, a loom that is a frame and you could have something that the thread is then spun into and you would be running the thread through the loom, like through all the oh. different threads, and then you'd wait, push wait, wait. it. So do you put the thread? So say you have bits of thread going down this way. So you wrap it down this way. Then do you spin it back this way? Yes. Then you spin it back this way. Yes. Until you have cloth. Yes. Oh, okay. Okay, that yes. makes so much sense. Why did I not I know that? Yes, but also it's a good question though because I can't even begin to explain the process because I know what it is. I just feel if like you it showed won't me get a picture flat. of like, yeah, that's definitely a loop. I, I know exactly what that is. Because you felt cloth, you felt yeah. How do they make it so fine? I feel like if I were to loom some thread into fabric, it would have huge gaps. Yeah, that's the thing that they watch out for the for the phrase. So I'm just making sure my mic is on, but <laughs> I, okay, that's cool. Okay, enough about the looms. Okay, okay. But it's important to know. Oh, no, obviously it is. So they're using the stuff for looms, and the silk could then be dyed and painted using minerals, natural materials such as cinnabar, red okra, uh, powdered silver, powdered clamshells, indigo, any other kinds of inks or other things that could be extracted from different vegetable or other organic matter. There's any number of ways that you could get stuff to diet. And the silkworm that was used to make all this is very unique. Like this is really the only insect that has actually been domesticated by humans. If I recall correctly, there's a thing with um, 
there's a thing there's a thing with uh silkworms where most silkworms if not all can't actually survive on their own now like they 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 they, they can't they have to specifically be reared by are humans are you joking i'm pretty I'm, sure that it was something like i might be wrong you can do i might be entirely speaking out my ass right there but i'm pretty sure that if humans died out silkworms would also die out i I swear I remember that, but I might just be talking out my ass. I don't actually know if that's the case. No, the silkworm moth is thought to live only in captivity. The species has been so genetically altered by humans that it can no longer survive independently in nature, particularly since the adults have lost the ability to fly. Oh, I see. I was right. Okay. Okay. I remember hearing that years ago. So they're completely extinct in the wild. So it's a 100% domesticated insect. It literally will not be able to exist in the wild now. So all wild populations are believed to be extinct, although presumably related, like related forms may still exist in Asia because we do have the domesticated silkworms. So I'm assuming they're assuming that there's other types of silkworm moths. Yes. Or things that are related. What? Yeah. So they literally just, their habitat is just a silk farm. Yeah. What if we mess up the silk farm somehow and they all get a disease and then it'll just be the end of silkworm? Yeah. That's so much pressure. Yeah. Yeah, that is genuinely the whole thing about what happened to bananas. In fact, we could do an entire in episode fact, dedicated to that. I still have no idea what happened to bananas except they stopped existing in the 60s and now we have fake bananas. Well, it's a specific species of it because the one that was most popular that people use is no longer a thing. Ah, okay. So, before we go any further, though, ad break time. Everybody, shush! William Shatner has something to say. Cat and Jethro, box of oddities. What do you do when the woman you love dies? Well, of course, you dig her up and you live with her. Aww. The show examines weird things. There are plenty of old photographs from this time period of children out in the streets playing in and among the dead horse carcasses. Oh, I miss those days. Things used to be so much simpler. Cat and Jethro. Then there's the urine wheel, which sounds like a really bad game show. They've done weird things. Cat and Jethro, box of oddities. That is really mysterious. Join Cat and Jethro Gilligan-Toth for the strange, the bizarre, the unexpected, as they lift the lid and cautiously peer inside the box of oddities. The Webby Award-winning Box of Oddities podcast from Airwave Media. Some of us love history. Others used to or never did because history was presented as nothing but the rote memorization of names, dates, and facts. Basically, the story got left out, and that made history kind of suck. My name is Greg Jackson. I'm a university professor with a PhD in history, and bringing history to life is my passion. That's why I created my podcast, History That Doesn't Suck. I want to teach you everything you need to know about U.S. history, but I do so through stories. Let me tell you about George Washington begging his men not to mutiny against Congress. Clara Barton saving Union soldiers amid enemy fire. Enslaved Frederick Douglass risking his life for liberty. And about so many other figures as their real experiences make industrialization, social movements, and even congressional debates and tax policy come to life. Subscribe to History That Doesn't Suck today. And join me, Professor Greg Jackson, every other week for a new episode. Where I'd like to tell you a story. And we're back. All right. 
So sericulture is a thing. They're producing a lot of silkworms. They're producing a lot of silk. They're producing a lot of stuff. And so as sericulture develops, there's a lot of different government policies that are implemented in order to kind of guide it and manage it because this is a really big industry. It's a really big and important thing for China. The earliest policies that get implemented from 1122 BC to 917 AD were rather passive. Uh, it included things like sacrificial ceremonies to the patron saint of silkworms, so to speak, like the spirits of it. Uh, prohibition on the destruction of mulberry trees, kind of like what you would have with the prohibition on the destruction of olive trees in Greece because of how important it is. Uh, the prohibition of use of silk by those who didn't raise the silkworms themselves, which is a little bit of an odd thing, but it simultaneously means that in order to, it's kind of like what would happen with wine. Like you couldn't just buy wine. If you wanted to have wine, you had to be able to grow it yourself. It was like a thing for the rich to have. Well, you'll see because as the silk industry developed across China, it became way, way, way more involved on, you know, how many trees were planted and all of that stuff. So it makes sense that they would say, hey, you have to help us grow this or you can't touch silk because it was a huge export. It was huge yeah, for the industry, as you sense. know. And they needed a lot of it because there were points where they expected farmers to raise like 600 trees. And it used to be like five. It used to be like plant us five trees. Just it just varies depending on the importance of the trade at that time for what's going on. Yeah. So in 57 AD, the Han Dynasty issues an edict that protects peasants from government interference during silkworm season. It's like the same kind of thing that you would see for it's like, oh, we can't draft uh, the farmers during harvest season, you know, for the food, but you couldn't do it as well during silkworm season because of how important it was. It was, this was something that would essentially freeze any kind of court procedures, uh, tax collection, government services, any and all social functions would just stop when it was time for rearing season. The Han would also prohibit the merchant class from wearing silk because it wasn't something that you were allowed to just tout. It was that in big of a status symbol. It's also really important to note at the time that caring for silkworms became something that was a bit of the responsibility of women. This Which, was something that they were doing. Fun fact about that, actually, they saw it as so much of a responsibility of women that they had a punishment where they would castrate you. And if a castrated male, Ugh. yeah. He was sent to care for the silkworms as well. Yeah. So that says like a lot about their culture and about, I guess, how they viewed women and silkworms. I mean, the castration would be the removing of your masculinity. So that was, yeah, that, that, that makes sense. That, that does actually make a lot of sense in a very Ancient twisted, is, screwed up way. Yeah. Remember, we did an entire podcast that was dedicated to eunuchs. For things like, I remember. I wish I could forget. Oh, there's so many details. If you haven't heard that episode, go back and just listen. Mind you, during that episode, there's a lot of detail that was left out. A lot of detail. We're not going to talk about it now, very obviously, but go back and listen to it. But there's even more messed up stuff that was happening during there. Um, okay, so during the Zhao Dynasty, right, there is a law that official robes that are worn by the emperor and by dignitaries. Anything that is for the great ceremony of worshiping heaven and earth is to be made from silk and it had to be produced by silkworms that were raised by the empress and the great ladies themselves. This went as far as to have the empress ensure that the great ladies would give up essentially any kind of embellishments that they would have in order to devote themselves 
to soap production, like to the cocoonery, to everything. They it, were so hardcore. They made it that the clothing that they wore to care for the silkworms became their like garments that they wore just generally. Yep. You had to have that skill and simultaneously it was a thing. You how Because little- I think this was definitely back when they only like the emperor and like important people, oh, the big people. were allowed to wear silk because it did start off as only royalty and important like VIPs can wear silk. And then, you know, it trickled down. I love sumptuary laws. I love sumptuary laws. Well, going if you into find this. this really cool piece of cloth, I'm not just giving it to anyone. Oh, yeah. During the uh, during the Wei Dynasty, which this is from like the 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 fourth century AD all the way to like the like mid sixth century, the government requires that there is a definite number of mulberry trees that are going to be planted by each farmer, like exactly what you were talking about. And it's here that the government really starts to take less of a passive stance and more of an involved stance in sericulture. Because in the beginning, it was a simple rule, something along the lines of that for every five acres of land that a farmer had from the government, they were required to plant 50 trees. But during the Tang Dynasty, it was two trees for every farm. During the later part of the 14th century, the requirement was once raised as high as 600 trees. So entirely depending on what was going on with trade or anything at the time, this would determine how big of an importance and what it is that a farmer was required to do. Which logically it makes sense because at first if only the emperor and like royalty was wearing silk, you don't need that much silk. But then once it opens up to everybody, you're like, hey, we need silk. Oh, yeah. And it gets so funny because they become so in need of mulberry trees. You're, you're just, just read it. Just okay. keep going. So I then, think you're right there. Oh, yeah. So during the, the, the Song Dynasty, right? The Song Dynasty from 960 to 1127, the government then dispatches sericulture officials in order to go around and promote sericulture. The magistrate of one of these regions even sets there to be a fine for minor civil offenses, not in money, but rather in planting of mulberry trees. And the offense was only removed once the trees actually began growing well. So you couldn't just go into a situation plant rapidly like 50 trees and go, okay, I'm done. Because if you did a shitty job and those trees died, you didn't do your job. No, you actually had to dedicate yourself and make sure that they were growing well. Otherwise you were screwed. Uh, Another magistrate then went ahead and had people remove all of their tea plants in order to plant mulberry trees. And when this happened, he was very heavily criticized, but then the tea trade actually stopped doing well for a time. And this meant that the region that he did this in prospered because silk, which is a he risk. He absolutely did not know that was going to happen. I just want to point that out. I am very, very sure. No, I but it's the equivalent of he like. He did not um, know it was going to happen. If you want to draw this in a comparison to anything, think about what's happening in, say, early colonial America, where you have a place that most of the people, the big cash crop in the beginning was tobacco. So then let's say something happens there and, you know. The uh, uh, like someone switches from tobacco to growing cotton and then cotton, the cotton gin gets introduced. And so all of a sudden your cotton becomes way more productive, even as people are utilizing less tobacco. So now tobacco falls in price and cotton skyrockets. It's like a risk that you'd go with when it comes to cash crops, because it doesn't serve any other purpose necessarily besides either a drink or a clothing item to where it's a cash crop. It's not food. Makes sense. You're not going to eat tea leaves. Probably could, but it's 
probably going to be have a very different effect. Is that a deer? Because I will eat a tea leaf. I'd like to see you try it. Do it. Next time we do a YouTube video, just, just you with like a koala stuffing tea leaves into your mouth like eucalyptus. I'm pretty sure we can make a mukbang video out of that of you just eating tea leaves. No, thank you. I'll pass. So if you fast forward in time, right? You have the Ming Dynasty, which is from 1368 to 1644. And they had some of the harshest policies when it came to silk. They required that 600 trees be planted in three years, but also placed a very heavy fine upon those who would fail to meet the requirements of the government. So basically, once the silk industry took off, taxation on sericulture would then have to be implemented by the government, where silk, being such a huge product, was something that had to be paid as tribute to the emperor. Taxes were collected on mulberry trees. Silk would be exported to other countries. It was huge. But it wasn't just during, like, the Ming Dynasty. This was everywhere. Silk trade was the big driving force, or at least one of the big driving forces behind Chinese trade. I mean, during the Han Dynasty, we go back by around almost 2,000 years. This was when it was becoming a really big industry. This is when you see the majority of the big trade routes that are established between Europe and Asia, like the Silk Road. Though I guess a more accurate term in this case, and I think we're going to talk about it later, is the Silk Routes rather than the Silk Road. Because the Silk Road is a very general term, but there were a multitude of different paths that you could take from Asia to Europe. There's a lot of different places. I Marco Polo and they said the Silk Road. I know. And they took one route. Also, if you haven't watched Netflix's Marco Polo. It's pretty good. I'm it was so, kind of fun. It was really good. I'm so sad that it didn't do well and ended up getting canceled. But uh, so the Han Dynasty is when Rome met China for the first yeah. time. Yeah, that's that's when they. Because the Han Dynasty comes up a lot. Yes. And you don't learn a lot about the others because when I was going through, I was like, I've never heard of you. If you want to think about things in classical terms, like if you want to relate it to anything, the Han Dynasty is to China what Rome is to Europe. It's the classic idea. It's the OG great empire. Like, yes, you had the Qin dynasty before that. You had the, the Shang, you had the Zhou, you had these different, yes, okay. But the Han, that is the classic one that is the, the big Chinese dynasty that everything usually harkens back to. Do you think there's like Han dynasty fanboys? Like there's oh, Rome easily. fanboys? Gabby, Romance of the Three Kingdoms. The Romance of the Three Kingdoms specifically takes place with the fall of the Han Dynasty. So, yes, there are Han Dynasty fanboys. There are specifically I'm, people that would I'm be gonna obsessed with I'm going to rebrand as a Han Dynasty. I'm going to learn as much as I can about them. And then you'll have like your Roman helmet and I'll have like a Han <laughs> hel- helmet. You have like the Chinese emperor <laughs> hat that has like the dangly beads that point down the front. You know what I'm talking about where it's like a cone that goes up and it's a flat top. And then it has like the little beads I that I don't dangle. know what you're talking about, but look when up, I am done with my up, research. Look up Chinese Emperor Can we hat. do a podcast episode on the Han Dynasty? Oh, yeah, easily we could. I'll research that and it'll probably end up being about something that is right not now, the Han look Dynasty. Look up Chinese Emperor hat. For anyone that's listening right now on this on your phone, look up Chinese Emperor hat. Because to this day, I still think that it's one of the most entertaining types of hats that I would ever see. It looks like a hat is combined with one of those... Um, uh, it looks like a hat that is combined with one of those bead entryway things. You know, when people put the beads in front of doorways and it's not an actual door, it's just hanging beads. Oh, the thingy 
at the top so it goes straight up and then it hangs to the front. Yeah, and it has like all the beads that hang down. That's like really cool. I wish it went down further so it covered like your eyes a little bit so you'd be like mystical. <laughs> I like it. That's that. I don't think I can like wear one because I'm not Chinese, but <laughs> it looks very cool. Oh, I'd wear that just on the daily. You can't wear it just on the daily, Stephen. You're not an emperor. Ironically enough, my name in Chinese, I remember from a roommate I had in, uh, in college. Was it Bing Shu? Yeah. So the Chinese version of my name is Shu Di Ven, which like D is means like king. So he said that it is a name that I should never actually say in China because it sounds incredibly arrogant of me because I'm essentially saying, oh, yeah, my name means king. And it would be something that would be insulting to a lot of people. At least that's what I was told. And I was like, ah, because I remember D, like that actually does mean I like I want to call him up and ask him if he was messing with you. No, I did look it up. Like D actually does mean that. It's like, huh. it's like in the same way as you'd have uh, O in Japanese, meaning like great or powerful or king, like O-sama, that kind of thing. Your name is offensive. I like that. I love that for you. My name is arrogant is what it is. It's very arrogant. Anyway, back, back, back to the story. <laughs> we got sidetracked. I'm so sorry. Keeps on guys. happening. It, Welcome to the podcast and what it's, happens. Okay. In our defense, it is 1140 PM and we are very tired. True. And we just finished with a big Twitch stream prior to this. So yeah, that, that, that's how that goes. So Silk is very important, right? It's so important that China is desperate to keep sericulture and the knowledge associated with it. Everything has to be a secret from outsiders. And by doing this, they ensure that China maintains a monopoly and are able to keep the prices of silk up and high. Anyone who tries to sneak out silk rooms out of China, it's an immediate death. It's an immediate execution. You're going to be behead. That's it. End of story. Done. Which actually, the way they snuck the silkworms out, I don't know if I put it in here. Did I put it in here? I don't think you did. You want to tell the story real quick? I don't you know? think I remember it well enough to tell it. But monks were involved. And yes. they snuck the uh, silkworms out. That's, that's the whole story, actually. What ended up happening here is that there were cases of silkworms that got snuck out of China because some monks had, like, canes. And inside the canes, like, you screw up the top. And then inside of the cane itself were infant silkworms, essentially, like larvae. And I think they came to... Um one of the emperors or so I don't remember the story, but it was actually very, very cool. It's like the first like heist. Yeah. It's like one of the first big heists. Wait, wait, in wait, history. Can we just pause, go look up the details of that heist and then put it in here. Okay. Before we do that, ad break. All you need is a few minutes to start your day off with something historic. When you listen to the, this day in history podcast, every day, there's a new episode for you to listen and learn about what happened that day way back when. Today could be the day a famous mobster met their end, or the first milestone for humans in space. Who knows what history today holds? Find out when you listen and subscribe to This Day in History wherever you get your podcasts. That's This Day in History wherever you get your podcasts. Okay, so I got it actually pulled up here. Uh, so, silkworms were brought from Asia to Byzantium around 550 A.D., Legend has it that two monks hid silkworm eggs inside of a bamboo pole in order to smuggle them out of China, where they guarded or where they regarded as close state secrets. The monks then presented the eggs to Byzantine Emperor Justinian I in Constantinople, where he created a thriving silk industry. Silkworms reached Italy through Sicily in the 12th century, 
and by the 13th century, silkworm cultivation had migrated north to the Po River Valley. By the 16th century, sericulture had been introduced to the Como area. So I'm actually not sure if from that, if it's just a legend or that is actually what happened, but some people smuggled out and that's the story of how it happened. I wonder if the silk that other places were making were still like the quality of the original like Chinese silk. That's a very good question. Because if China was doing it for that much time. Because you can't just smuggle out the silk worms. You would also need to smuggle out seeds for mulberry trees. Because you wouldn't be You'd able. You'd also need to know the entire. Oh, wait a minute. That's actually something important. Let's say you smuggle you know the silk how, worms You'd have out. to know how to grow them. Yeah. Right? So you're not just having worms in a cane. It ha- there has to be way more to this story than I mean, that. It was eggs. It was eggs, right? Because the actual process of yeah, getting but how do they know how to grow the eggs? Like, who was someone would have had to go with them, or they would have had to observe for a really long time. Like, hey, this is how you properly raise silkworms. Because if you give me a silkworm, I can't start a flourishing silk industry. No, you're right. It's like okay, so silkworm farming was a brutal job since silkworms require a constant mild temperature. Entire sections of farmhouses would be turned over to them and whole families would have to pitch in, stoking round-the-clock fires in order to maintain the proper warmth. God, these just, like, high-maintenance things. Just buy it from the source. Some even gave the worms the house and slept outside in stalls with the animals. The process would begin with the 10 to 14-day incubation of silkworm eggs, which are produced by the mating of adult silkworm moths, and according to the Silk Museum, keeping the tiny delicate eggs, which are about the size of pin, like pinheads, at just the right temperature was the task of women who carried small bags of eggs in direct contact with their skin, sometimes between their breasts. Once hatched, the worms, only about one millimeter long, had to be fed mulberry leaves night and day. And from a birth weight of only half a milligram, they would grow 10,000 times to a final weight of around 5 grams and a length of 8 to 9 centimeters. So that's, that's what happens. I have to say, but this is the thing that actually makes me question the whole thing about the legend. If you snuck out the eggs, they are going to hatch, and then they have to be fed around the mulberries the clock, around the clock. Leaves. So you and they also have, have to, they're going to hatch if they're kept at that temperature. Mm-hmm. So it makes sense if they're carrying it like physically on their person and whatnot, like for that time. There's just so much that goes into this story that they just are like, oh, this is what happened. But what are the details, besties? I understand it was forever ago, but, but I need to know. you sneak out the eggs, you would have to sneak out the trees. You would have to have trees planted well, and ready before anything else. are mulberry trees only native to China? Because I feel like they're not. If they're not, then what would have had to happen is that they would have had to bring out the trees first before that plant that in preparation, which means that it's not just something that was decided on the moment. That is a whole espionage, like massive plan that would have so, to be enacted. They're native to temperate Asia and North America. Okay, so this just So gets, they would have had to bring trees before they but brought that's the worms. where they're native to right now with our current climate. We have to factor in the climate of back then. We're getting way too deep into We're getting into way this. too deep into this. <laughs> We're overthinking. Well, you get what I mean, right? Like they would have had to sneak the trees before they snuck the worms. <laughs> we are so sorry, you guys. Um, we should never record a podcast after 10 p.m. Sorry. <laughs> okay so so sorry we'll get back into this you know but first ad break and we're back okay so silk being transported important to the trade yes 
silk was being used by Persian courts, right? It was being used by all kinds of different kings, queens, everything all across the world. I say the world at this point. So all across Central Asia going into Europe. So when you have Persia and its king, Darius III, he is the ruler when Alexander the Great goes and conquers the empire, bringing in knowledge of silk. Or not exactly bringing knowledge silk. I think I'm fumbling my words at this point. This whole thing ends up happening where it is it is starting to bring more silk into the Hellenistic world because Persia at this time is like the gatekeeper that's holding everything. And it would continue with that legacy for literally centuries going afterwards. And then you have the Roman Empire, which would buy silk from Persia because, again, they're the gatekeepers. They're like the middlemen between China and Rome. And silks became widely used by the rich and noble in Rome. In fact, there is one Roman emperor called Heliogabalus. Who he was said to wear nothing but silk. Wore nothing but silk. And you have to think how expensive that is. We can't necessarily properly anticipate how expensive that is now to just understand this. The price of silk in ancient Rome was such a level that some silk, like in order to just get a bolt of cloth from it, could cost as much as 300 denarii, which that was the salary of a Roman soldier for an entire year. So here, here's, here's the point. I actually remember this fact in here. Remember how we talked about uh, the Tyre in purple, like the, the, the purple dye that is made out of crushed snails from Tyre? We didn't talk about it. At my work Christmas party, you went into a whole spiel about it to Megan and Megan was like, I asked him one simple question and I did not expect every minute detail. <laughs> the <laughs> Welcome to my life. The most expensive cloth in the entire Roman Empire was thus a combination between the two. Purple silk. Silk that had been dyed in Tyrian purple. If a Roman senator had even a single patch of this silk on their toga. And that's oftentimes what it was. You wouldn't even have an outfit of some of this stuff. You would have a patch of this silk on your clothing, on your toga. That was like money, money. You were rich. Like people would take out loans to get this kinds of stuff. It was I'm that gonna ridiculous. Get a, like a purple silk robe and wear it every day just to flex. You could. No, well, you the were, ancient Romans. Yeah, yeah, no, that, that, that is like unprecedented wealth. That is ridiculous. But that just shows how insanely valuable the silk trade was. It's not still expensive, right? I mean, it's to get an entire silk thing, it's more expensive than cotton or other stuff like that, you know. Okay, because I want to flex, like but I don't want to go broke. I don't make that much no, money. No, you've got an entire silk outfit. Like, if I'm just going to look this up right now, like 100% pure silk dress. Well, I'm literally let's, this up. You talk about the silk trade, right, and you, I'll look it up. All right, you look it up. How much does a 100% pure silk shirt cost or something? Like, authentic 100% pure silk. But trade, again, is super valuable. We're talking about these routes that were going on between China and the ancient Western world, most notably with like Persia and then Greece. And this begins to open up in the first and second centuries BC. The Roman Empire and the Kushan Empire, which is what would rule the territory in what is today northern India, would benefit from the massive amounts of commerce that would be created all along the Silk Road. Now, interestingly enough, a thing to note from this is that uh, the Greek word for China is Ceres, like which that's where we get like Ceres culture. 
that literally would mean the land of silk. But it's funny because that when you look at Silk Road as a term, that didn't become a thing until going into the 1800s. It's really not that bad. It's like $165. For, a, for, for what? A shirt? A or dress? dress? But if you got to Dior Silk shirt dress with belt, it's $4,900. Yeah, you said the word Dior. That just makes way too much sense. Look at that. Oh, that bothers me. But <laughs> it is what it is. It is what it is. As I said before, though, Historians refer to this, this whole thing now no longer really as the Silk Road, but rather the Silk Routes, because it more accurately reflects how there were many different routes that one could actually go through to do things. Because the Silk Road includes a huge network of strategically located trading posts, markets, like thoroughfares, anything that you would be going through just trading along the way. Because when you hear the word Silk Road, we think it's a road. At least that's what I thought as a kid. I thought it was literally a road that the Chinese emperors had built that connected the capital of the Han Dynasty all the way to the West. Bestie, you grew up in the U.S. of A, where you guys have like roads that make sense. Where I'm from, the main road is like this road, but it goes like this. And there's like this branch that goes here. You just grew up in a place with too good of infrastructure. Yeah, no, it's and that's true. on you. It's true. It's true. It's that's on you. Because in my head, I was like, there's no way there's one road from like China to down here. Please. Yeah. So that's what I thought as a kid, mind you. But no, the, the Silk Road is a term. What it is, is all those different markets, all those different like paths, all those different ports, everything in a giant interconnected trade network for the transport, the exchange, the distribution and storage of all these different goods. Routes would extend from the Greco-Roman metropolises of Antioch, uh, like which is across the Syrian desert via Palmyra to Cestaphon, Cestaphon being the Parthian capital going into Mesopotamia to Seleucia on the Tigris River, which again, a Mesopotamian city, which is in today, modern day Iraq. Isn't that the one that they were uh, sieging when they got the yes, Antonin Plague? Correct. Correct. Seleucia. Huge, huge point in history. Very valuable. Very big city. Massive trade hub yeah they were seizing it because it was huge and important that's one of the things the romans specifically wanted to take a lot of that stuff from mesopotamia in order to get more stuff and access to like the silk roads and the trade that would come from it so these routes would extend all over the place and then from seleucia it would go eastwards over the zagros mountains through iran to the cities of ekbaktana merv which additionally would then follow additional trade routes going across what is today modern day afghanistan eastwards into Mongolia and China. The Silk, and that's just over land. The Silk Road would also then lead to ports all along the Persian Gulf, where goods would be transported up and down the Tigris and Euphrates rivers. Even though the name Silk Road comes from silk, I mean, I I would think that from all this, that would be obvious. There was a lot more goods that came from this, like way, 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 way more. This this material was something that was incredibly valuable, but it wasn't just the only thing that was coming from the east to the west. We're talking about fruits, vegetables, livestock, grain, hides, tools, religious works, artwork, precious stones, but everything. It's a massive, massive, massive trade network. Language, culture, religious beliefs, philosophy, science, technology. Technology is huge. Also disease. A lot of disease. I feel like Silk There's, Road needs to go before Antonin Plague in the order of podcast episodes. 
Maybe it would. I don't know. I don't know. If you're listening to this, I don't know what it is that we've decided at that point. We're just recording a lot of these back to back to back. But a lot of stuff came out of the Silk Road besides just silk. I mean, we're talking about technologies like paper and gunpowder. We already know gunpowder was invented in China, but it is specifically through the Silk Road that gunpowder would come out like the technology of it and paper. Because prior to paper being invented in China, they had paper-like substances, but the closest thing that you would get is like papyrus out of Egypt. And besides that, what they would use is uh, like vellum, sheepskin. Also, on that note, have you ever seen one of those? This is a little random side note for anyone who might be listening for anything in the comments or whatever. I've seen one of those. Have you ever seen a vellum manuscript? No. Imagine an entire book made out of skin. It's all leathery. Okay, as someone who has had to skin a sheep, I don't like that picture. Yeah, no, it's it's it it has like a yellowish brownish hue to it. Oh, I know what it's like. I yeah, I'm good. Thank you. (laughs) So paper, obviously very important. That thing gets uh, invented in China around the third century BC, and it spreads all over the place. Right, it arrives in Samarkand around 780 before moving into Europe through the Islamic ports that are in Sicily and Spain. And of course, with the arrival of paper, you would see Europe go through its own kind of industrial changes with written word becoming a very important and key point of communication for the first time everywhere where it's more accessible because with paper, you then have the printing press being invented, allowing for the mass production of books, later the newspaper, Enabling distribution of news and information. It's huge. All of this stems from the Silk Road. And in addition to paper, you see spices. Spices from the East quickly become very popular in the West. And this changes things all across Europe. All the different techniques for making glass are going to migrate eastwards from China and from the Islamic world. Everything seems to be coming from East to West here in the beginning. There's just so, so, so much out of it. Even gunpowder, the thing that eventually the West would bring back to China in a very unpleasant form later on. Opium Wars. That's probably a whole other thing that we probably want to do the podcast have, on. I don't, I don't know anything about the Opium Wars. We need to do that as an episode. Please do that as an episode, but I can't research it because I want to be surprised. Okay. Yes, definitely going to do that. Even with, with gunpowder. Though the origin of it, we don't know everything. There are still references going back to China from as early as like 600 AD. And historians do believe that gunpowder was exported along the Silk Road through Europe, where it was then further refined and used for cannons in England and France and everywhere else in the 1300s. I mean, the nation states that had access to this stuff, it's a very obvious big advantage in war. And thus, the expansion in export and knowledge of gunpowder would have huge impacts on the political history of Europe. The Silk Road would expand everything, even going in to explorers like Marco Polo. Again, we, we talked about the Netflix series that we watched this, and I'm so sad. I'm so sad that this thing got canceled because if you've not ever read the travels of Marco Polo, do so, it is an extremely entertaining thing because you're talking about a firsthand account describing all these places across Europe 
that the majority of people did not have access to in terms of knowledge. There were a number of Islamic explorers that had traveled all across the Islamic world, writing about different peoples and things that we have knowledge of. But before all that stuff was translated, places in Europe really didn't have access to a lot of this information. So a lot of Marco Polo's writing when he's traveling, not by boat, where he's skipping a lot of things, but rather overland by camel, following the different routes until they arrive in Jandu or Janadu, which is like the lavish summer palace of the Mongolian emperor Kublai Khan. They didn't have like 99% of this information. It's all new. And because he spent 24 years in Asia working at Kublai Khan's court, maybe he was a tax collector or just as an advisor or something. All of this information that we have about the ancient world, or not all of it, but a good chunk of it, specifically comes from his writings that otherwise he wouldn't have. It is such an incredibly valuable thing. And this only occurred because of the Silk Road and the travel routes and everything. And the Silk Road then only exists because of things like Silk. Well, it also traded spices, but I mean, yeah. <laughs> of course, but th- that was one of the big driving factors behind this, even before spices. Like the thing that built the Silk Road was Silk. And then it just expanded into everything else. It's really crazy. And I feel like I've gone on like a whole bender of a rant here at the end for it, but. This was a fever dream of a podcast episode. It was. <laughs> Sorry. It was. But I don't want to apologize too much. I had so much fun recording this. And researching this. Oh, yeah. I went down so how much stuff many you did in the beginning rabbit for this. holes. I wish I were like better at like painting a beautiful picture like you are. But I'm like, here's the facts, homies. <laughs> Regardless, I'm very proud of the work that you did. And I hope that for anyone who has listened to this, I hope that you all enjoyed it, too. Uh, Gabby's going to be writing, doing a lot more stuff here with me in the future. And I'm really proud of her. Actually, Gabby, do you have a family history at all in here? Should I pull that up real quick? Yeah, we need to. All right. So for probably what was going to be a little bit of a cut there, went ahead and had to uh, find a family history, which can I just say on this? Because I'm sure you've seen the emails go off again and again and again, popping up on the phone. I love reading them. Yeah. Last two weeks, I believe, or so, the amount of family histories that we have been receiving has quintupled. Easily, like five times the amount that we normally would be receiving. A lot of you have poured in, and I really love and appreciate all the stuff that has come in from here. I feel like I need to do many little podcast episodes to put out just so I can sell more family histories. Because we're not going to be able to get through all of them with just the amount that are in here unless I put out more. So this one uh, from says, Hello, Sakuyi and Gabby and listeners. While I wish to remain anonymous, shit. James, edit out his name. Steven is an idiot. I said the name right there. James, if you're listening to this, please put like a beep. Some like, I know you normally don't have sound effects. the entire name. I'm so sorry, person whose name you didn't once said. You may call me by my name on Twitch, Jemetic. So today for you, I have two things, a story and a few suggestions. But first, let me introduce one of my ancestors that I discovered while exploring my family history with a certain family tree website, Rear Admiral of the White Order, Thomas Graves. Born in 1605 to a somewhat wealthy family in London, Britain, Thomas, from what I was able to dig up, grew up around boats as his father, John Graves, was a shipbuilder and owned a shipyard. Oh, cool. The first ship he worked on as a crewmate would be the Talbot, 
which be part of the fleet that would transport some 350 settlers from the Isles of Wight to New England in 1629. And at this point, he also started the process of moving to the New World. He would repeat his voyage, but as a captain in 1632 on The Whale, in 1633 on Elizabeth Bonaventure, and in 1635 on The James. By 1639, it is known that he and his wife and his three kids, at this point at least, had moved to Charlestown, Massachusetts. By 1643, Thomas was able to build a ship in Boston, The Trial, and The Trial, from what I can uncover, was a lightly armed merchant ship that he captained. During this time, while he was on land, he also started a campaign and fundraising for a new town to be built called Woburn, now known, oh, well, Woburn, it's spelled in a different way, now known as Woburn. Unfortunately, he would never actually see that town. In 1652, while on a mercantile voyage in the English Channel, he came upon a Dutch pirate ship and he was, that he was able to capture. As an award, he was awarded a silver plate by the ship's owner and a warship, the president, by the military officer, Oliver Cromwell. Sometime in 1653, he was appointed Rear Admiral of the White Order, in which he had to move back to England, this time permanently, due to a horrible reason. In July of that year, he, on the St. Andrew, participated in the Battle of Chevingen, where he and a handful of his crew were burnt alive on July 31st. So it just ends with him dying? Due to the distance from home, instead of being sent back to the Americas to be buried, he would be in England in an in-laws plot. For his death, the British Parliament gave a thousand pounds to his wife. I know not the happiest ending for the story, but I feel that I should tell this man's amazing life story so that he may not be forgotten and left in the dustbin of history. A cool side note is, through him, I'm related to the 30th president, Calvin Coolidge. I'm a descendant from one of the Thomas's sons, while Calvin is a descendant from one of his daughters. And now for a couple future podcast video ideas. Ah, always love these when people give their suggestions. The life of my favorite badass president, the bull moose, Theodore Roosevelt. I'm writing it. I know. I've thought about doing that one. I'm writing it. I am in love with Teddy Roosevelt. Uh, Fair enough. This is one for me then. The Mongol Empire. Not for only their rapid military takeover of most of Eurasia, but also their unequal safe trade and merchandise and ideas throughout Eurasia. From the Silk Road, what we talked about. Really, a lot of that expansion and trade that you'd see in the later, uh, like, middle, medieval ages. I feel like if I research Teddy Roosevelt, I'm not going to be in love with him anymore. Because I have a very idealized version of him in my head. But back then, everyone was racist. Yeah, but Gabby, I'm going to tell you something. Like, here's the thing. And obviously, he harbored prejudices. But there is a specific thing. And I know that everyone, this is probably someone, a lot of people's fun fact from this. And I know this is the thing we're getting at the very end <laughs> as a bonus thing. One of my favorite things, and why can I not remember the name of the guy? who it was that he had invited to the White House. Um, why can I remember that guy's name? It's going to bother me here. I have, to, I have to look it up. Hold on, hold on. Who did Teddy Roosevelt invite to the White House? Yeah, Booker T. Washington. Well, I don't know why I had forgotten here. But so Booker T. Washington gets invited to the White House, who is black. And this causes a whole bunch of like people to get all hoity toity pissed off about how dare he invites someone like that into the White House. And when I say someone like that, I 
it means exactly what you think it means. So they with didn't that. let yeah. African Americans into the White House. Okay, continue. Well, Just no, continue. for dinner, like he was invited to the dinner, like a like a member of the the elite and the upstanding. Okay, continue, continue. I'm I'm curious. And so hear. his response back to it, all the criticism was that, essentially, he will judge a man by the quality of the man, not by his skin color, and he will invite. The, like Booker T. Washington back to dine with him whenever he pleases. Basically the most polite way of giving a giant middle finger saying, screw all of you. I will do whatever the hell I want. You morons. It's just a beautiful little thing. Well, we'll see what I dig up on good old Teddy. Anyway, thank you all very much for listening. I hope you enjoyed today's episode and I will see you all next time. Bye. Goodbye.